You're listening to audio from Valley Christian Fellowship. If you'd like to check out more resources or even connect with us, go to www.vcflongview.org. Well, his love is our delight. And today, as we continue in the end of 1 Thessalonians, our goal is to learn not just how to know his love, but, but to how to love each other and treat each other. So as you remain standing, let me read for you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Listen to these words that instruct us as a church. Hear now to God's word. It says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Let's stop right there and have a seat. Now, as we continue in this series, we're on the home stretch. We're toward the very end of this book, and in the next few weeks, we're going to wrap this up. And at the end of this book, we become incredibly practical. If you were here with us last week, we saw the practical instruction of how the elders of a church and a church are meant to interact with each other and care for each other. That was incredibly practical. We we don't have to figure it out on our own. And now today, as we move into these next few verses, we're going to see how we we keep each other on track. Now, to to set things up for you, I was was thinking about the best baseball team I ever played for as I was was a kid playing ball. Now, I played for a lot of teams growing up, and and some of them won a lot of games, some of them won not a lot of games. But the best team I played for, I say it was my best team, not because of our record, but because of our coach. The the year I was in ninth grade, we had had a a, a coach that he took our on-field experience, and he had incredibly high expectations for that, but he translated that into who we were as young men playing ball. It, It mattered to him how we lived, not just playing on the field, but off the field. This was the first coach that when we had a when we had a game, we were required to dress up with a shirt that was ironed, with a tie, and with shoes that were polished. And as ninth graders, we had to walk around the school that day looking like this. It wasn't the most popular attire in my day, by the way. He he didn't only have us polish our shoes. On game day, we had to show up with our cleats cleaned and even polished. He was a serious kind of coach. And he was the kind of coach that, that he would work us hard as a team with high expectations and with the goal of, of really becoming great players. And so because of that, when we played ball, even in our practices, he would push us harder than I'd ever been pushed before. And it was amazing what began to happen on that team. Because you take a bunch of middle school guys or high school guys and you start playing ball together, ninth grade, and, uh, and we had players that liked each other and players that didn't like each other. We had players of, of incredible skill and players of mediocre and players who were just kind of struggling to hang on. And in that team, where in previous experiences, there was oftentimes a, a kind of a sense of picking on each other or a sense of like the good players could do whatever they wanted to the other players. On that team, as we worked hard together, a lot of the typical biting at each other and, and kind of being aggressive toward each other started to fade away. On that team, I remember experiencing doing the same drill for the 100th time and having my back sore from, from being bent over in fielding position and having my wrist sore from the thousands of times we flipped the ball during the day and, and hearing our teammates start to tell each other, hey, don't give up. Hey, keep going. Hey, you can do it. I remember on that team as we ran around the field for who knows how many time, time it was during that practice and being exhausted and being in that moment where usually the players were far away from the coach and we start to complain about the coach. Instead of doing that, hearing things like, hey, let's do this, guys. Hey, let's, let's keep moving forward. Hey, we can, we, can, we can beat our time. We begin to have a different attitude even on that team. I remember when someone would start to slack a little bit. And oftentimes in the past where it would be overlooked or just discarded, having one another call each other out, hey, you're better than this. Hey, that's not who we are as a team. And seeing the way as a team together we improved. And I think, without a doubt, that was the most, best team experience I ever had. And a lot of it rested on the coach. But, but even though that wasn't a great experience, what I want to show you today from this morning's text 
is how that experience on a baseball team, it doesn't even compare with the way we're supposed to treat each other. That experience of being together with a purpose as a ball team, it doesn't even come close to the way that we together keep each other on track. In fact, that's our big idea today. Today, our big idea, as we think about how to practically apply the truths of Scripture that have come out of 1 Thessalonians, here's what I want you to take home. Together, we keep each other on track. You ever tried to live the Christian faith alone? You ever tried to walk through life without letting anyone walk with you? It doesn't usually work. Or maybe, maybe as you've lived your Christian life, have you ever seen a brother or believer and you've seen them struggling and you've wanted to know, how do I care for this person? And you've kind of just like backed away because you're unsure, how do I actually care for them? Or maybe you've had one of those awkward conversations where someone shares something difficult in their life and you're like, "Um, uh, um, I'll pray for you. You kind of pat them on the head and walk away like... (laughs) you don't know how to care. See, this text today, this text, what it's going to do for us is it's going to show us three specific ways that we help each other stay on track. Not only that, it's going to give a few very general ways of thinking about how we not only live together as a church, but as we think about even the world. So why don't you turn with me, if you haven't already, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's look at the very first practical way we keep each other on track. In this practical way, it has to do with those who are idle. Here's our first, our first point is that we warn the idle to keep them on track. We warn the idle. Look at the text, verse 14. It says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Now, the term idle here, some translations will translate it lazy, and so you kind of get the impression, okay, we need to warn people who are lazy in their faith. But, but in the ancient writings, the, this word in Greek was never translated lazy. It was actually typically translated as unruly or undisciplined. This is the idea in the church for a Christian. This is the person who has failed to, to perform the orderly duties they have as a Christian. And this is a person who is idle. This is the person who says something like this. You know, I believe in Jesus, but I just don't read the Bible. Or you know what? I, 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 I follow Christ, but I don't really have time to pray. Or, or you know, I, I go, or I'm going to go to heaven, but you know, I, I only go to church occasionally. See, these three small examples, these are actually small examples of what we would call your, your duties as a Christian. Now, sometimes we talk about duties and people start to feel a little bit unsure. Like, are you trying to be legalistic? Are you trying to put requirements on me? And, and here's the reality. I, I'm, I'm not trying to put them on you at all. But, but the reality is when you're in Christ, you begin to walk in line with what the Scripture calls you to in, in the most basic of ways. When you're in Christ, you begin to, to pursue him in, in following his word and knowing how to live. You begin to, to pour out to him your heart in prayer with whatever your concerns or your worries are. You begin to ask him, Lord, God, will you shape my thinking? Will you guide my decisions? When you're in Christ, you, you want to be with his, what he calls his bride or his church, his family. This is part of the duties of being a Christian. Think about it like this, though. We're not saying that you do these things so that God will love you. The the Bible never teaches, hey, do these things and then God will love you. Actually, the New Testament scripture teaches the opposite. It says God has loved you even though you fail to do what pleases him. God, he cares for you even in your rebellion, even in your sin, even when you say, God, I don't want you to be God. I want I want to be my own God. The scripture teaches that even when you were spiritually far away, dead in your trespasses, Jesus came and died. And in his death, he paid the price for all of your sins. His death and then his burial and then his resurrection gives you this incredible gift. This gift, yes, of heaven. This gift, yes, of forgiveness. But listen, it's also the gift of a brand new life, which comes with these, these very real and reasonable duties. 
Duty is like bringing your soul before the Lord. Now, let me just maybe admonish you for a moment. How often do you go and open up the Word? You know, a few weeks ago, I was talking to a guy, and he said, I, I have a hard time reading, but I can listen to things. And so he, he, he goes to the Word of God daily by putting in his earbuds and listening to the Scripture because he understands he needs it. How often do you go to the Lord in prayer? How often do you sit, go close your door, and go sit with him and say, God, here is what's going on in my life? Or maybe not even just closing your door. How often do you pray throughout the day? Next week, we're going to jump into the, the verse that talks about praying without ceasing. Is that part of your, your Christian life, where you realize you always get to go to the Father in prayer? Now, how often do you make church a priority? These are some of your, your responsibilities for your soul. What about your responsibilities for others? Think about your responsibilities for others. God, Jesus says not just to love the Lord your God, but he says to love your neighbor as yourself. How diligent are you in serving your neighbor? How, how faithful are you in caring for those around you? That's some of what we're going to talk about today, especially in how you care for their spiritual well-being. Jesus' words in the end of Matthew, he gives a, an incredible responsibility, a giant duty. You remember what it is? He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. He says, behold, I am with you all always, even to the end of the age. This is just, a, this is just a, a, a brief overview of the duties of being a Christian. Things like growing in your spiritual life. Things like living in light of the love of God in the way you treat other people. And those who don't live this way, the scripture has a term for them. And it's not meant to be derogatory. It's not meant to be, I'm going to point at you from my high horse because of my moral authority, but the plain scripture is, says that they're idle. The idea is they're unruly and they're undisciplined. They don't discipline and organize their life around the things of God. And so if those exist in, in the church, which every church has them, right? And, and all of us from time to time find ourselves being idle. In fact, I would guess if every one of us is honest, there are places in our lives where each of us are idle. What is our response to them? Is our response to judgment or belittling? No, no, no. The, the, the term here is to admonish. The term here is to warn, admonishment, we looked at it last week, this is the idea of a brotherly correction. This is not, I'm going to make you feel guilty, but instead I'm going to come and put my arm around you and say, let me walk with you. Let me show you. Let me show you what it looks like to live the life in Christ that you have been given. See, the goal for this person, the goal is not guilt. The goal is, very simply, it's self-discipline. It's training someone to walk with Christ. It's training someone to be faithful to the Scripture. It's training someone to learn how to pray. The word here is to warn or admonish. And let me just be very honest. Some of the greatest moments of growth in my life has been when a, a, another man, usually, who's further down the road, has come and they've looked at my life and they've said, Mike, I don't think you're thinking about this correctly. Mike... I'm noticing how you're spending your time. Can, can we talk about this? Can we rethink about this in, in the light of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the moments where someone has been willing to warn me? Those have been the moments where I have grown the most. But here's the deal. Admonish me. It's hard. I mean, if I passed around a, a sign-up list today and I said, okay, I want everyone to sign up for this new ministry. This is the ministry of admonition. And you get to go around and you get to find things in people's lives that are wrong and you get to correct them, right? A couple of you would sign up for that. I know who you are, by the way. But most of us, we would let that sign-up sheet pass right by. <laughs> most of us, we, we avoid conflict. We don't race into it. Most of us, we, we don't want those hard conversations. We would rather just like say, okay, they're not doing right, but I, I'm not going to say anything about it. But, but listen very carefully. We desperately need more admonition in our church. 
We desperately need men to admonish one another, to, to be bold enough, to be brave enough, and listen, to love each other enough that when you observe a life that is not ruled by Christ, when you observe a lifestyle that is not disciplined around the things of God, that you come into them and say, hey, can we talk about this? Hey, will you explain to me why you're living your life this way? Can you explain to me why you're spending your time, so much of your time doing these things? Can you explain to me why you're, you're pursuing things that are not bringing honor or glory to God? That is real and true admonishment. And we need the same thing women to women. Generally speaking, man to man and woman to woman, it works so much better. That's why we have ministries like our, our Titus 2 women's ministry where, where what is it? But it's mentoring relationships where women meet together and they care for each other, they pray together, they learn together, and very often there is a real warning, an admonition. We, we need more admonition. See, if we're going to keep each other on track, we need to warn or admonish the idol. But, but let's keep going. Because he lists out three specific situations, and this is the first one. We warn the idle, but then the second one is we encourage the timid to keep them on track. We, we encourage those who are timid. Look again at the text with me. Here's what it says. It says, and we urge you, skip ahead to the next instruction, encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. This word faint-hearted, it, it can be translated a handful of different ways. It's the idea of discouraged, those who are losing heart. But, but the literal translation, it's two compound words, and it could actually be taken as this. To, the faint-hearted is, is the person who is little-souled. It's the person with a little soul, with a soul that is shrunken or weak. This is the idea of they are, they are overwhelmed with a sense of their inadequacy or their inability. The faint-hearted or the discouraged, the little-souled the little person is the person that, that looks at salvation. They say, maybe I'm not really saved. How could God save someone like me? Or the little-souled person is the person who looks at the persecution that is coming for following Jesus, and they say, how can I stand under the, the difficulty of this world? It's the opposite idea of a very common idea in the ancient world, which is Aristotle's ancient idea of, of the great-souled person. See, the term little soul, it's only used once in the New Testament scripture, but it almost seems to be a contrast of the idea of the great souled person, the great souled person in the ancient world, the large soul or the mega souled person is the person who walked through life with absolute confidence. It was an ideal in the ancient world to say, I'm going to face whatever challenge comes before me and I'm going to accomplish it. This is the person that said, I deserve much of life because of who I am. And, and Paul seems to be using the opposite word to, dis, to display the opposite idea. And it's only used once in the New Testament, but Jesus used a very similar word. In the book of Matthew, Jesus uses a very similar word. He uses it four times. It's not the term little sold. It's the term little faith. You remember him saying that? Oh, you of little faith. Let me walk you through the four times Jesus says it. They seem to progressively build in their weightiness and in their spiritual ass or impact. Jesus' first time using this term, O you of little faith, comes on the, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has just explained how God will provide for every one of our earthly needs. God's the great provider. Chapter 6, verse 30 of Matthew. Jesus says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how or will he not much more clothe you? Here's the phrase, O you of little faith. This phrase is a phrase that draws those who are worried about their provision to put their trust in God, who will in fact provide. Jesus says, God will provide. Don't have little faith. 
But then the next time he uses it, the stakes are a little bit higher. He's not just teaching in general. The next time he uses it, he is with his disciples on a boat on the sea, and there is a wild storm raging upon them. And these disciples, they're beginning to be fearful. They're beginning to worry that the boat is going to capsize, that they're going to be shipwrecked. And Jesus, here's what he says to them, Matthew chapter 8, verse 26. He says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the second time Jesus uses this phrase, he's not just saying God will provide for your needs. He, he is teaching that God will provide in the storms of life. That God will provide when things are dark and bleak and difficult and you're not sure how you're going to make it out of it. That God will provide when things are difficult. But then he uses it again. A few chapters later in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus and his disciples, they're at sea again, but it's not the exact situation. This time, the disciples are on their boat and Jesus is walking across on the water toward them. At first, they're stricken by fear. They're worried that this is a ghost, right? I mean, for crying out loud, there's someone on the water. It must be a ghost. But then they realize it's Jesus. And Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, he says, if it's really you, if that's really you, Jesus, will you let me come and walk on the water with you? And Jesus invites him out upon the water. And sure enough, Peter begins to walk upon the water until he looks at the waves and he takes his eyes off the Lord and fear begins begins to creep into his life and worry and concern, and he begins to sink. Matthew chapter 14, verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? You see, the first time Jesus uses it, he says, God will provide for your needs. The second time Jesus uses it, he says, God will provide in times of difficulty. The third time Jesus uses it, he says, God will provide when you are attempting to walk in faith and life is not working out the way you planned it. He'll be right there with you. In the fourth time, Matthew 16, and Jesus has just warned his disciples about what he calls the leaven of the Pharisees. Think about yeast in, 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 a, in a, the batter or the dough of bread. He says, I want you to be, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. This thinking, their teaching, their wrong teaching, their selfish teaching, their self-centered teaching, their man-centered teaching. Jesus is warning them of the leaven of the Pharisees and how it will permeate their entire lives. And the disciples, they miss what he's talking about completely. And they revert all the way back to worrying about if they have enough bread. Listen to Jesus' response, verse 8 of Matthew 16. He says, But Jesus, aware of this, he said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Here, here's here's the, the exclamation point almost. Not only will he provide for their need, not only will he provide in times of trouble, not only will he provide when they're trying to walk in faith and they feel like they're sinking, but, but he ultimately will even provide the true teaching, the true gospel that's centered on God and the work of God to bring salvation instead of the man-centered teaching of, of these Pharisees. Oh, you of little faith. Maybe you feel like you're someone with little faith today. Maybe you're overwhelmed with concern and worry and anxiousness of the things of this world. Or, or maybe you know someone who seems to be experiencing a, a, a season of life where they're small-souled, where they're, they're discouraged and they're faint-hearted, they're timid. How does Paul say that we meet this person in their need? How does Paul say that we are meant to help this person stay on track? Here's what he says. He says, encourage the timid. 
Encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage those who have little soul. You see, the growth goal right here is, is that they would end up with a greater faith, a greater trust in the Lord. Now, this term encourage, it's like we almost expect it because Paul has used this term over and over again up to this point. Some of you guys are like, Mike, you're going to use the same definition you've used a number of weeks already. Yes, I am, because, because this is such a key theme in this book. Encourage means to come alongside and provide comfort or strength. You know how you help someone who has a little soul? You know how you help someone who is timid or, or faint-hearted? You don't Shout from across the room, hey, do it better, try harder. You don't encourage from a distance. Encouragement is when you come, you stand right alongside them. And you say, let's, let's walk this path together for a while. Let's take steps and stride side by side. Spiritual encouragement happens in, in a, a host of different ways. Let, let me challenge you with some ways that you can encourage someone. You realize one of the greatest things you can do to encourage someone is simply to read the Bible with them. Some of you can say, I'm not qualified for that. I'm not a pastor. Listen, listen, just for a moment. I think any one of you that I know in this room, you can open up your Bible, you can turn to the book of John in the New Testament, and you can just start reading about Jesus with another believer who feels like they have a small soul, who is struggling in their faith, and you can get the big ideas, you can get the main message over and over. There might be places where you're like, I'm not sure what this means, I'm not sure what's going on here. Well, give me a call, shoot me a text, send me an email. We, we will point you to resources. We will help you with whatever questions. But listen, the simple act of opening the scripture together is a powerful spiritual moment where you are taking the person with a weak soul into the gym and helping them grow their spiritual muscle. Maybe, maybe that's your challenge, to be brave enough to read the scripture with someone. You can do the same thing, simply maybe texting someone every day a, a verse that you're reading. Shooting someone a text, hey, I read this today and I thought of you. Hey, I read this today and, and I'm, I'm praying for you and, oh, and this passage over your, you. That, that's the other way is to pray for someone. To, to, to sit down and pray with someone after a service or to pray for them during the week and shoot them a text and say, I'm praying for you. We, we've talked about this before. I've, I've cast this vision before. What if you this week said, I am going to think of one person in my life that I can bring encouragement into their life, especially someone who is faint-hearted or discouraged? And what if you did whatever it took to encourage them? And what if you did that next week? And the week after, and what if every single one of us at Valley, we begin to have this habit, this rhythm, where we're constantly encouraging one another? This is how we keep each other on track. We keep each other on track, not just by warning the person who is idle, but secondly, by encouraging the person who is timid or faint-hearted. But the text continues. Let's, let's look at the, the rest of verse 14. It says, we also help the weak. We help the weak to keep them on track. It says, we urge you, brothers, skip over the first two instructions. We urge you, brothers, help the weak. Now, this idea of being weak is the person who is maybe physically they're ill, they're sick. But more likely, it's talking about someone who is, who is morally weak. Someone who lacks moral strength. The, the weak person is the person who is tempted toward impurity. The weak person is the person who hates the fact that they find themselves at the bottom of an alcohol bottle every night. And they want desperately for it to change. But they're weak. And they keep failing. The person who is weak is the person that, that after they have a conversation where they gossip, they just have this sour taste in their mouth from the words that were coming out of their mouth, and yet the next day they find themselves doing it again, and they say, why am I doing this again? And the person who is weak is the person who hates pornography and yet finds themselves opening up their browser again and again. And they come to you and they say, I'm disgusted with myself and I'm tired of this sin and I'm covered in my guilt and I'm covered in my shame and what I want more than anything is to be changed, but I feel so weak. 
Jesus uses the same word in Matthew 26 when he's in the garden praying. In Matthew 26, Jesus is he's facing down the road to the cross. He knows his betrayal is looming around the corner. He knows that his beating and his false arrest and all of the lies and all of the accusations are being lined up for him. He knows being drug outside the city limits and nailed on the cross where he's going to breathe his last is hours away. And with all of this weight and all of this pressure in one of the most significant moments in all of Jesus' life, Jesus takes three of his closest his friends and he takes him to the garden and he says watch and pray with me and then he goes a little distance away and he begins to pray and he goes back to him his three friends where he's looking for strength and support and he finds them sleeping and he wakes them and he, he rouses them and he says, watch and pray and then listen to these words as he understands what's going on in their lives. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We've all been there. We've all been there and we've been there in great moments where our weakness is just outstanding. We've been there in lesser moments when our weakness is subtle. Some of us are living there right now. I mean, no one's the wiser of it. How do we treat the person who is weak? How do we treat the person who, who sins again? Do we, we okay, done with you. Do we turn our backs on them? Do we say you can't come to the church anymore? Do we, do we turn off the faucet, the spigot from our love and say, okay, no more of my time, no more of my energy, no more of my care? Look at the simple word Paul uses here. He says, help the weak. This is the idea of supporting the weak. It's, it's when, when your brother or sister is weak and it's like spiritually speaking their walk is they're just they're barely able to take the next step and you come and you take their arm and you put it around your neck and you put your arm around their side and you support them. You lift them up. It's the idea of being devoted to them. It's the kind of devotion when they come to you and they say, I've messed up again, or I don't understand this, or I'm so tired of this, and you look them in the eyes and you say, you are not alone, and I will walk this path with you however long it takes. Help the weak. One of the great difficulties in the church is typically we're all willing to help the weak, but we're rarely willing to be weak. We're rarely willing to share with a brother or sister what's really going on beneath the surface. We're really good at putting on the Sunday morning mask and saying everything's great, but beneath the surface there is a deep struggle, there is a heavy weakness, there is a great shame, and we don't know what to do with it, and we want desperately to be free of it. One of the greatest ways we find that freedom is when we find help with one another. It says to help the weak. This means the growth goal here is very simple. It's, it's moral progress. It's someone taking little steps forward in their battle against sin. The idea is that we provide the kind of help so our brothers and sisters are no longer bound by their sin and their shame and their guilt. I've told many guys, you can call me at any hour of the night if you are finding yourself in a moment of weakness and you need help. I'll make this offer right now. If, if there's anyone in this room and you know your weakness and you're tired of weakness, you come, you come to me or another leader in our church and one of us or we will find a solid, mature leader that we know will be devoted to you. We will find someone to walk with you and help you in your weakness. You need not be alone. You have a church family to help keep you on track. You see how this works? When someone's idle, we warn them. Why? To keep them on track. 
When someone's faint-hearted or timid, what do we do? We encourage them. Why? To keep them on track. When someone is morally weak, what do we do? We help them. Why? To keep them on track. Together, we keep each other on track. But, but the text continues. It says, it says these three instructions in specific situations, and, and then it gives a much broader instruction, which I think makes a growth goal, not for the person we're ministering to, but it's actually a growth goal for ourselves. Let, let me show you that we are patient with everyone to keep our, ourselves on track. We are patient with everyone to keep ourselves on track. The text continues. It says, we urge you, brothers, skip over the, the three specific instructions, and it says, be patient with them all. Be patient. This is one of the fruits of the Spirit. We, we, we went through the fruit of the Spirit this last year, and, and uh, in that, we talked about patience. And in the word, it's another compound word in Greek, and the word we translate patient, it actually means long-suffering. It's one of the most terrifying words in the Scripture, right? Long-suffering. Who wants to suffer for a long time? But this is not patience because the line is really long at the DMV and you've got to wait a long time. This is not patience because there's no longer bags at the check stand at the grocery market and so you're frustrated and you're losing your cool. This is patience that is completely relational. It's person to person. It's long-suffering with another person, not a circumstance. It's being patient with the person who's idle, it's being patient with the person who's timid, and it's being patient with the person who is weak. This means that the growth goal is our, our spirit-led relationships. Let me say something that might not, uh, you might not agree with at face value. Do you realize the difficult people in your life are God-given? You know that really uh, difficult coworker. God has placed them in your life in part to grow you in your patience. You know that moment when your child is acting in a way that is just incredibly challenging? You know that moment is happening not just for you to parent them well, but so that you will grow in your patience. Well, let's apply this to the life of the church. In the life of the church, do you know that that idle person that idle person who needs your spiritual warning, who needs your patient warning, they are in your life for your spiritual growth. That, that means that, that discouraged believer who over and over again, they have little faith, they have a little soul, they need your patient encouragement. And God has placed them in your life not only so you can give them patient encouragement, but for your spiritual growth. You know, that means that that weak saint who falls on their face over and over again, who needs your patient help, they're being used by God in your life for your own spiritual growth. Be, be patient with everyone. Why? So that you will stay on track. You know what gets us off track faster than just about anything is when we lose our temper, when we lose our cool, when we flip our lid, or when our patience runs out. Be patient with everyone so that you stay on track. And then the text continues. It doesn't just give us these three specific situations and then this blanket one that says be patient with everyone, but it gives us one further instruction as we keep each other on track. Look at verse 15. You're going to see that we do good to the evil to get them on track. Look at verse 15. It says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. It says, in your life, when someone does evil to you, when someone does harm to you, when someone does something that is morally wrong, how do you respond? Well, let me ask you, how do you respond when someone cuts you off in traffic? In that moment, I'll tell you how I want to respond. I want to be the arbiter of justice in that moment. Usually my horn is how I apply that justice, right? Uh, you know you did wrong. 
in my weak moments, I'll try to get next to them and look at them. You don't do that, do you? They almost never look back, right? How do you respond when someone does evil to you? The scripture says that the Christian is not the one who does justice. The Christian is not the one who brings judgment upon the evildoer. The Christian is not the one who says, I'm going to make it right by the strength of my arm. The Christian is the one who, when they experience someone doing evil to them, their response is to do good in return. This sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Matthew chapter 5. But I say to you, Jesus' words, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, the way of Jesus is, is not to give the right and just punishment to those who have done wrong. Now, there is a mechanism in our world, and that's actually the, the job of the government. The, the government is meant to be the sword toward those who do evil. The, job, the government has that job, but oftentimes we want to make it our job. It's not our job. Our job, when, those, when people do evil to us, our job is to return it with Good. In fact, that term, that phrase, seek to do good, it's in a tense that is continuous. It's you never stop, you never slow down, you continue to try to do what is good. And that word good there is actually the word what is best. Here's what it says, in every situation, especially when someone does evil to you, but in every situation, in every relationship, you seek to do what is best. You seek to do what is best. We've seen that in three ways. With the idle, the best thing you do is to warn him. With the faint-hearted or the timid, the best thing you do is to encourage him. And with the weak, the best thing you do is to help them. And now we're patient with everyone. And then it says, and with the evil, when someone does evil to you, the best thing you do, you respond by doing whatever's best for them. This goes against our, our ingrained nature of wanting our, our rights. But listen, this is so important for two very, very key reasons. Here's the first. The first reason why it is so important that we return good for evil is because church is really messy. Hey, guess what? You're surrounded by sinners. Hey, guess what? You hang around in church long enough, it's only a matter of time before someone hurts you. You're going to hurt them as well. We're going to sin against each other from time to time, sometimes intentionally because of a hard heart, sometimes unintentionally just because we're inconsiderate. But guess what? You will get your spiritual toes stepped on. You will be hurt in church. Guaranteed. It's how we respond to that that determines what kind of church we are. You see, if we become the kind of church that every time someone does wrong to someone else, we say, I'm going to repay them. I'm going to get evil. I'm going to make sure they get theirs. You know what happens? We become a den of vipers. We become a place that is so terrible to be around. You probably have seen churches that do that. Where there's no grace. But what if when we find ourselves being sinned against, led by the Spirit, we offer good in return. Led by the Spirit, we offer the grace of Jesus that we have received when he died for us when we were his enemy. What kind of church do we become then? We become the kind of church that, that is full of grace, that is full of forgiveness, that is full of joy. We become the, kind of, become the kind of church that God has called us to be. The very first reason why you and I, why we need to return good for evil is because church is messy. But here's the second reason. The world is messy. The world is messy. And we gather here today, and most of us have, are those who have said, I have put my faith in Jesus in his death and resurrection. But when we go out into the world, most of them are those who have not put their faith in Jesus in his death and resurrection. And they don't realize it, but they are desperately longing to know the Savior's love. 
And so when we go out into the world, if we go out with the attitude that says, I'm going to demand justice, I'm going to demand my way, I'm going to forcefully make sure everything goes for me, and anytime someone steps on my toes, I'm going to step on theirs twice as hard. If we do that, you know what that does? Is that puts us as this, this distant, moral, high horse riding people that never have a voice with them. But if we go and if we are faced We're facing situations where someone does evil to us and we respond like Jesus and we give grace and we give forgiveness and we show goodness. You know what that does? That draws the world to Christ. That draws the world to faith just like you have. That draws the world into the repentance that, that you and I walk in. You see, it is so important for us to return good for evil because not only is the church messy, but the world is messy and lost and in great need for a Savior. See, if we do this, you know what happens? We end up getting others on track. We end up getting others to to see them walk with Christ, to know the Savior, to find the hope that you carry in your life. This is... This is not complicated, church. Uh, This is not very difficult in terms of the concepts we're talking about to understand. The difficulty comes in living it out, doesn't it? Because most of us, we want our little bubble around us, and we want to come to church, and we want to leave the church, and we want to barely bump into other people relationally, and we don't really want to be known, and we don't really want to know people. But listen, that's not church. That's not how we keep each other on track. So, so here's what I want you to do right now. I've, as I've been praying over this message, my prayer has been that the Lord would use this message to move us to action and not just say, oh, that makes sense. Okay, I got it. Here's what I would like you to do. I would like you right now to take a moment. And the first thing I want you to do, if, if you'll be willing, maybe just close your eyes or bow your head just to get your attention focused right now. Would you think about one person who you consider might be idle in this church or in your life? Maybe you know they, they, they don't engage with God's word at all and they don't pray. Maybe you see them like once a month or once every other month in the church worship setting. You, you, you know they're kind of on the edges. I want to ask you to pray for them. To pray that God would soften their heart and open their mind, but also pray that God would give you the opportunity to come and put your arm around them, spiritually speaking, and to warn them to warn them so that they will have a life that is ruled by Christ. Go ahead and take this moment and pray for whoever's come to your mind. Secondly, I want to ask you to consider whoever is faint-hearted that you know. Someone, someone who seems to have a little soul. They're, they're, they're doubting their faith. They're doubting their salvation. They're doubting their, their inadequacy or they're, they're dealing with their inadequacy. Will you take this moment to do the same exact thing to, to not just lift them up before the Lord and ask the Lord to be working in their life, but also would you ask God to give you the opportunity to come alongside them and to walk with them for a while, to figure out how you can be an encourager, maybe the greatest encourager in their life. Go ahead and take this moment and pray for that person. The third person I want to invite you to think about and to pray for is the brother or sister who's weak, who's struggling with their sin, who maybe you don't even necessarily know what's going on, but you sense that there's a struggle there. 
Would you pray for God to, to bring a hope into their lives? But more than that, would you pray for God to give you a path where you can be devoted to them, where you can hold them up, where you can support them, where you can bring a real help into their life? And take this next moment and pray for whoever it is that's coming to your mind. Father, you know the, the names and the faces of everyone who's gone through our mind these last few moments. You know their situation far better than any of us could ever know what they're going through. And so, Father, today we come and we bring these people before you with, with hearts that want to love them well, with a great desire to together keep one another on track. And so, Lord, we do pray for the idol that they would begin to live a life that is ruled by Christ. Father, we pray for the faint-hearted, that they would be encouraged. Specifically, they would be encouraged by the truth of your word coming through us. And Father, we pray for those who are weak. We pray that through help and support of the church, that they can no longer be bound by the sin and the shame that weighs them down. And God, we in each of these situations, we pray that you would help us to be those who are patient with everyone and help us to be those who do good to everyone. Lord, in those moments when our patience runs thin, Father, I pray you would remind us of your spirit that dwells in us and that by your spirit we would extend patience day after day after day. And Father, I pray for those moments where as a church where we might sin against each other, where we might offend each other, Lord, help us to be those who are quick to forgive and to do good, not to return evil for evil. And God, I pray that that would extend into our community, into our workplaces, into our schools, into our neighborhoods, into our families and extended families, in those situations where we are wronged, where evil is done to us. Lord, help us to be those who do good, who give grace, who offer forgiveness. And God, our prayer is that through that, you would draw men and women and children to repentance and into faith in Jesus Christ and God, we pray that through all of that, Christ is honored and glorified, that he is seen as magnificent because he is. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.